Okay, g'day. Welcome back to the Broom Docs podcast. It's me, Dr. Casey Parker, and today we have another lesson hard learned for you. It's been a little while since we've done a lesson hard learned. I've been busy doing a few other things, but I've got an absolutely stellar guest for you today. And the guest I have for you today is one of my ultrasound heroines. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's a hero. She's a lady, and she's the most awesome ultrasound educator out there. Good day to Dr. Risa Lewis. How are you? Good day, Casey. It's great to have you on the podcast, and I'll just do a quick intro for people that may not have seen your work before, Risa. Risa's an emergency physician. She works out of Denver and Colorado, though she's worked in all different parts of the US. And more importantly, she's worked all over the world doing uh, ultrasound education and outreach into some really poor parts of the world, and has really been a, a leader in sort of pushing ultrasound out there where it can really make a big difference. So. Thanks for joining me, Risa. Tell us a bit about your life as an ultrasound teacher. Uh, well, thanks very much, Casey. It's great to speak with you as always. Uh, I guess just in brief, when I decided I was going to pursue point of care ultrasound as a niche within our niche, I was basically told that it was a bad idea. Don't do it. Ultrasound's not going to go anywhere. and Ultrasound hasn't gone anywhere. And, uh, you know, three people I knew who were mentors essentially you know, go-to people for me had all used point-of-care ultrasound either when working in a county hospital in Los Angeles or when doing disaster or global health work, uh, specifically in Africa. And that was inspiration enough. It felt like a right move. And all of a sudden, around the time I did a fellowship and decided to pursue this as, as uh, my medical education focus, ultrasound became very hot. Now, this is now well over a decade ago. But um, it's it's proven to be quite a quite a great voyage, I'll say. You know, and I have been able to educate all over the world, all over the United States. But you know, it's about providing high quality, better quality, optimizing patient care, depending on their environment and resources. And moreover, I get to meet fantastic friends such as yourself. Yeah, it's been it's been really good, actually. The sort of international fraternity of ultrasound teachers is is such a positive and and great club and and it's been great to meet all of you guys and and spend time and and we actually met at the Yellowstone ultrasound course uh, just before the SMAC Chicago conference and it's just wonderful spending a week with sort of like-minded physicians who are passionate about teaching and also providing better care so that was that was awesome. Now Risa the case that you're going to share with us today is a bit of a segue unfortunately it doesn't really involve any ultrasound whatsoever so (laughs) Sorry if anyone was expecting that, but it, there's no ultrasound. So, quick disclaimer. <laughs> we could probably sneak some in there somehow. Anyway. <laughs> so, I would... um, And uh, the the case, it it's sort of a, a while back for you now, but it's one of those cases that sort of stuck with you by the sound of it. So, why don't you sort of lay it out for us? Tell us what happened and, and tell us, you know, what went down on that particular day when you learned this hard lesson. Sure. So this is a case of a gentleman I saw probably about a decade ago was when I was working in New York City. And I was in the super track, fast track area. This gentleman had a mechanical trip and fall and had caught his fall, was not syncope, fell on his face and had a laceration on his forehead that went into his eyebrow. So essentially it was a laceration repair uh, in a 70-year-old gentleman, no real head injury risk factors, and and that definitely wasn't the point of, of the case. 
So we chatted and uh, he laid down and I prepped him to do a laceration repair. And with the covering over his eye, uh, I started with my procedure. And he just started talking. And before long, I realized that I was witness to a confession. Uh, he shared that he was actually previously a physician and he previously had worked in an emergency department. Uh, Soon after beginning his career in the 1970s, though, he told me he no longer worked in the emergency department, and he sort of went into corporate medicine, worked for some finance company that essentially could keep him on staff as an in-house in doc. Mm -hmm. So yep. basically, he, he shared a case of um, a patient who was coming in in cardiac arrest, and when the patient arrived... Uh, it was a middle to late middle-aged gentleman who uh, was in cardi cardiac arrest and died. So he got on the phone and he called uh, the patient's wife and the patient's uh, grown child and told them that they, could, they should come in, that there was a, had been an accident. Uh, and that was all he really told them uh, by phone. So anticipating that the wife would be arriving and that she would be now, this was his description, his words, that she would be, you know, a mess and that she would need some sort of sedative. He told the nurse to drop medication. So sure enough, the, right. wife, the wife arrived before the adult child and they had, she was beside herself, upset, grief stricken, something all we would expect. And mm -hmm. they administered medication. And the next thing they knew that she basically went into cardiac arrest. And they realized that she'd been given a large IV dose of an antipsychotic rather than an IV dose of a sedative. This put her hey, into cardiac ouch. arrest. Yeah, yeah. And so then he said he realized, okay, that he was going to have to tell the grown child, the son who then arrived, that not only was his father dead, but his mother was dead. And wow. I just was sewing and listening and kind of, you know, had the reaction that a lot of us have, I think, in you know, sort of environments such as the emergency department, your environment, primary care, where basically you become privy to people's stories. And what I realized was there was no QA, there was no M&M. There was actually, from what I understood, no disclosure to the adult child. And what became also clear was that this patient of mine had carried this with him for about four decades. And I'm pretty sure this is what led him to leave his practice, leave working in the emergency department and go into something that, you know, less responsibility, perhaps less risk and very regular hours. Yeah. So basically retiring from that environment and sort of saving face in a way by staying in the game, but in a very safe environment. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's really an incredible story. And, and to be clear, this, this would have happened many years ago so so you're telling you saw this man 10 years ago and pre presumably his story was dated 10 or 20 years prior to that so we're talking about in the 80s or 70s potentially that this went down yeah and and don't think i didn't do the math i did my math and i was like huh what's my responsibility here and then i did the math and it was about 40 years prior right okay so well well and truly past any statute but tell me risa when you're in that situation, you're doing something which is completely innocuous, like sewing up a patient or talking to them about their blood pressure or whatever else, and, and all of a sudden they disclose this sort of really heavily emotionally laden, and obviously it, it, it is almost like a confession that's going on there. 
how how do you deal with that in the moment? How do you sort of obviously none of us are prepared to sort of deal with that at any point in time, but what's your sort of strategy? What did you do with this chap? Well, I think it's one of the things you you learn about yourself and you notice about yourself because you know we have many stories like this where all of a sudden you know there's that oh my goodness, so I tend to react uh almost without reacting you know i want I do want patients to feel comfortable speaking with me, telling me what's going on usually when it's relevant to their medical presentation. So there's not a, there's non-judgmental reaction, emotional, emotion slash facial expression. Um, you know, I, I sort of stuck to business a bit and, you know, continued on with the sewing. And once the procedure was complete and, you know, the drape came off his face and he sat up and we looked at each other, um, I'll be honest, there wasn't much more that was, said or discussed and you know I might, I might have made some reference to the fact that you know medicine is different in this day and age and we, we would we practice a bit differently and and that's when I think I did ask him like was there anything organized such as case review or M&M and he basically said uh, no there wasn't at the time yeah okay and that's pretty much the, the way things were done back then and that there was really very much an individual sport there wasn't a lot of institutional oversight with many of these things that obviously still happen in medicine, but we deal with them in a very different way. Yeah, so that that's a really tricky one. And I think for listeners out there that work in family practice or, or general practice, this is something that happens pretty much every day of the week is that you never know when the next patient you call in from the waiting room is going to have a complete sort of emotional breakdown as they walk into your room and tell you things that you wouldn't have dreamed of given their expression sitting in the waiting room and say, as a profession, we, we sort of constantly have to have our poker face on and be ready to, to deal with whatever cards were dealt. And, and I guess that's one of the lessons here is that you never know on any interaction with any patient what the underlying meaning of that is. And I, I presume that this gentleman must have picked up something about your demeanor or the way that you spoke to him or the way you were welcoming maybe that, that sort of made him feel comfortable to, to talk about this stuff with you on that particular occasion. Yeah, and I believe there is something comforting to be able to speak with like-minded individuals, as you sort of mentioned and referred to. You know, I think it was a bit of a legitimacy of a physician-to-physician conversation and interaction. Yeah, okay. It's that sort of confidential, safe space, which, to be honest, in, in general practice where you're in a closed room with the door shut and it's you're in the cone of silence, that probably happens more, whereas the emergency department's not always the best place, but obviously maybe this chap it was the first time he'd actually spoken to another doctor in many years in that sort of doctor-patient relationship. We never know. Yeah, maybe enough time had passed. It, you know, the actual setup was a private room with a door that was able to be closed. Right, so, yep. Um, it, it was a, a safe-feeling environment probably. Okay. And you had a drape over the chap's face, so it was almost like those sort of Catholic confessional booths where you've just got a little hole between you and the person you're telling the story to. That, that was exactly the vision I had. Yeah, exactly the vision I had. Right, well, all right. So I guess the other lesson that we could probably take away from this case, and if we think about this from the perspective of the physician who you were attending to, is this idea of the second victim when it comes to medical error. And Simon Carley's given a great talk about this a couple of smacks ago. I think that's actually a, a, a time stamp now. How many smacks ago was it that Simon gave a talk? Where we talk about the second victim effect, and, and this chap had clearly 
had a terrible outcome. I can't imagine a worse outcome for the patient, but particularly if you're the physician, you you there's no way that you could sort of keep it together, I imagine, if you'd had a day such as that occur in your practice. And it sounds like there was very little in the way of inquiry, but I'm imagining also almost nothing in the way of support for this gentleman. That's what it seemed. I mean, the way the way he shared the story, he had been carrying this with him and wanted to unburden it. Yeah. And so that was pretty much symptomatic of the time that we lived in. And back then, and I certainly trained in an era in the rural areas where basically physicians were sort of these proud independent solo practitioners that never really had anyone to unburden to. And they sort of dealt with everything as they as they wanted. But I'd like to think that today things are very different. And I, I imagine if this happened in your shop tomorrow, Risa, if there's a bad outcome and there was sort of a gross medical error, how would how would you deal with that in your place today? Yeah, I'll say I'm quite thankful that things have changed. You know, the environment I'm working in now, specifically the hospital I'm working in now, there's a very clear process that creates a safety net for not just the provider, but for the patient as well, and or not just for the patient, but for the provider as well, because there is this recognition of the effect it has on those of us who are providing the care. Uh, I actually recently had, uh, over the last few months, two instances of medication errors uh, that yep. involved, you know, team effect nursing uh, immediately recognized, immediately communicated by nurse to me, myself to charge nurse, um, head of operations, as well as pharmacy. And, you know, we all have been trained in the school of transparency and apologizing and, you know, all the things that can lessen the effect, the damage, the, you know, fill in all the blanks of the descriptors. So uh, we, as a team, in each instance, there were two, uh, and in both cases, the patients did well. Uh, but it was quite traumatizing and shocking and, and, and nerve-wracking at the time for everybody involved. Uh, we talked ahead of time how we would, uh, what we would do. We walked in as a team, uh, so it wasn't just one person to blame. It was a team. And there was full transparency about, you know, again, introducing ourselves and our roles on the team. I mean, this wasn't the first introduction. This was a repeat introduction of who we were, our roles, what had transpired, um, the fact what we were doing now to address the mistake and, you know, the extent to which the further care would be provided to make sure that the patient would be monitored, watched, and make sure that there was no untoward effect. And I have to tell you that I think it helped everybody to sort of deal with it real time, admit error, the transparency. And I could even see on the, the, the patient and the patient's family's faces that there was an appreciation, there was a respect, there was a, I mean, they weren't pleased, of course, but we're led to believe in the medical literature that this is the way to approach. And there's no question, this is the way to approach these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're sort of brought up in this culture where I guess we, we are all perfectionists, doctors on the whole, and, and nurses as well. We, we like to be professional and we like to think that we get everything right. We all aim to get 100% on our board exams. You know, we, we feel like we should be doing the best job possible. And when something like that happens, say a minor medic medication error or, or slip up or something like that, your initial reaction is to sort of cringe and to sort of you know, try and hide it. But I guess we all need to get over that reflex and, and try and be really transparent because there's really nothing to be gained by 
going down that pathway of avoiding the patient or or hiding an error or doing anything like that. It, it's really a pathway to causing more harm, unfortunately, if you do go down that pathway. So I think that's a really important lesson is that idea that we are really transparent, that we have ditched this old sort of paternalistic worldview where we are sort of infallible and that we can sort of do what we like and the patient only needs to know what they need to know. And I think, like you say, transparency is really the key uh, to avoiding ongoing harm as well as avoiding, I, I guess, what your patient was experiencing back in the day is this this sort of burden that you carry around if, if you're always making these minor errors and having to deal with them on your own without sort of having that open, transparent process that's going to weigh down on your mind. And I'm guessing that we're all going to make mistakes over our career. And it's probably a large contributor to physician burnout is that belief that we're somehow can aim for perfection when we just know that that's not true. Agree. And it's, I can't not comment on the fact that it was pretty funny that he just anticipated that the wife was going to be hysterical and she was going to need a sedative. And it just, it really brought me back into the uh, medicine of yesteryear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to think that we don't do that anymore and, and that we sort of treat grief as a, a normal part of life, but it, it can be incredibly confronting sometimes uh, when breaking bad news such as that because you never really know how the patient's going to react to you, especially if you're meeting them for the first time and you, you really don't know too much about their psychology or, or the way that they deal with, with stress. And I've certainly had a number of those over the years where, where people have gone, you know, right off the rails and it can be very difficult and very confronting but it's one of those situations where you need to be prepared have you have your game face on and and be in a situation and an environment where you can deal with all of those things in a sensible way but yeah like you say parenteral sedatives probably not the done thing anymore hopefully in most places right uh, i'll just share with you an anecdote that's sort of relevant a few years ago or, or maybe 10 or 20 years ago in I think it's New Zealand, the um, the government came up with this sort of uh, no blame medical compensation system, where if, if you suffered a harm in a hospital, for example, say you got a an infection or there was a medical error that led to some sort of disability, for example, that you were there was this sort of state funded insurance where you would be given uh, sort of insurance and in subsequent care or possibly a payout depending on the level of disability you had, and and that seems like a great idea and. So everyone was happy with that. But, but what it did was it meant that the patients never really had a chance to confront the physician that had harmed them. And so this is all sort of dealt with in a bureaucratic manner and the patient put in a claim and it went through outside of the court system and the patient got a payout and they were financially remunerated. But what happened when they introduced the system was the number of physicians that were assaulted by patients went up. And the thinking at the time was was that Patients really wanted an apology and wanted that human interaction with their physician to sort of look them in the eye and, and sort of get that apology or that moment of reckoning where they could sort of, you know, square off with the physician. And, and if that's done up front in a very open and transparent manner, that's taken care of. Whereas when we deal with things in a bureaucratic way or hide away from it or, or once the lawyers get involved, it can be very difficult to have that interaction. So I think it's really important to, to strike while the iron's hot and, and deal with those situations as they arrive on the day. And presumably, as you said, with a whole team and a, a very transparent way of doing it. I completely agree. Completely. All right. Now, 
Risa, do you have any other pearls that you'd like to share with us that you took away from this case more than 10 years ago? Yeah, I guess on reflection right now, wellness and resilience are very hot topics in medicine. You brought up the concept of burnout. And I think with the better attention that's paid to that, um, something like this, what do you call the, the second victim effect? And you know, what this gentleman sort of had, how his path changed, uh, the decisions he made and how I believe he carried this uh, could have been prevented. And, you know, who knows what else happened in his life um, based on this case. But I think I, I'm aware of support and resources and offices of professionalism and anonymous referrals uh, programs that happen in hospitals, hospital systems now that I think could have led to a different outcome for this physician. And I think the recognizing this perfectionism in all of us and recognizing the importance of balance and exercise and healthy and, you know, what healthy means. I just finished this very, very excellent book called Rest that talks about deliberate practice, but also deliberate rest and the importance of that and what it does in terms of renewing your brain, renewing your creativity and maintaining your health. Uh, I would like to think that things are at least a bit better now uh, for those of us in practice and in our profession, because it's a pretty impossible job. And I think um, the human factor that has entered our profession, the acknowledgement of physicians and other healthcare providers as human has really helped it be uh, a better field. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And uh, for all of those of you out there that working you know long shifts and and doing weeks back to back and 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 really working i think it's sort of very important for us all to have just time away and i think geography is a really important one just getting a bit of space between you and your workplace on a regular basis is a good thing to do and it can be difficult when you're coming up through the ranks and training but certainly it's something that you need to recognize and and i see this in myself like i know when i've done sort of six or eight weeks continuous without having a bit of time away, you, you, you do start find that your maybe your quality starts to slip or you're less empathetic and and those are symptoms that you need to see within yourself and and realise that it's time to sort of take a break either on a cognitive level or on a completely geographic level to, to get to another place and, and let your brain recharge. Because what we do is hard and it's not natural to do this stuff in and out every day and to be sharing these burdens and so we need to recognise that and, and hopefully allow ourselves time to sort of get over it and, and get back on the game and, and do a better job when we, when we return. Agree. Cool. Hashtag, hashtag tr- truth. <laughs> cool. All right, Risa, well, it's been absolutely great speaking with you. I, I, I'm afraid we didn't manage to slip any ultrasound in there, but I'm sure there'll be more of that when we meet up in a couple of months over in Berlin, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you again and, and sharing some great teaching there as well. Likewise. Thanks for bringing me on. I appreciate it. Okay, see you later.